Welcome to the Green Up Possibilities podcast, empowering you with information about what is possible, improbable, and nearly impossible with money. Brought to you by Green Up Wealth Management. Thanks for joining us. I'm Aaron Kirsch, Chief Client Advocacy Officer at Green Up Wealth Management. And with me is my colleague, Brad Skluzacek, Wealth Advisor at Green Up. Hi, Brad. Hey, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing great. Brad, what are we going to talk about today? Thanks, Aaron. I, you know, um, many of us face challenges, you know, set goals in life, and they can vary from climbing a mountain, running a business, or campaigning a philanthropy. Our guest today is Joel Schauer. He's CEO of a family-owned business, husband, father, and philanthropist. I've been working with Joel for many years and fed hours of conversation. I've also learned a lot about him over those meetings. Uh, welcome, Joel. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about some things that I have a love and concern with, and that being mountaineering and, and philanthropy. So thank you for this opportunity to get together with you today. Likewise. And Joel, I think, you know, when I look back at all the meetings we've had, it seems like every time we talk, I always learn something more about you and have a takeaway that just outside of the business conversation, much more of the personal conversation. So I wanted to share your story a little bit today, ask a few questions, and so others can kind of learn about what you've been able to accomplish, the goals you've been able to set, and how they kind of you know snowball from one to another to really achieve some great success that you've had. I think what we're going to end up talking about is mountaineering. But to kind of get there, I didn't intend to become a mountaineer. It kind of morphed from my helping start up some orphanages and schools in Uganda. I did that for seven years, and we uh, we lead couple thousand kids, 3,000 children, and we've, we've led some of them through to be college graduates. So it's been really an incredibly awarding, rewarding experience. So you were quick, you said Uganda. How did you get to Uganda? Yeah, thank you, Brad. That's a great question. I met a gentleman at an emissions testing center. His name was Ben Tamherway, and his last name is about 26 letters long but just developed this friendship with him. And then he invited me to come to his house. And I said, oh, geez, we're, we're, and he said, Kampala. So I had some time in my schedule and I've, I've always had a love towards things African. And I thought that'd give me a great new experience to experience the world. So then I, at the invite, I joined him. And now at what stage of life, age, like what point in time did this all begin? I started that roughly 38 years old. Uh, I had established a family. They had established a business. I had been starting to do some international travel. And for some reason, this kind of seemed like the next logical step in a progression of things. But it really reverts to a childhood experience that I had. And it made me recall that experience. So I, I told Ben, let's go. And then we, we did a uh, kind of like a vision quest when I was there as to what work he could do. He, Ben was a guy who had a uh, master's from Trinity College in Deerfield and was getting his PhD from Wheaton College in, in Wheaton, Illinois. So I know you, you started this with mentioning the success you had in Uganda with a thousand kids, 2000 kids getting the background. So I guess, you know, how did all of this lead to your mountaineering passion? I had done many trips there. And then I began to bring people with me, kind of show them a vision quest as to what possibly they could do. And then ultimately, I took my children there. My eldest daughter, Jennifer, and I went there probably three or four times. 
And when she graduated from high school, she wanted to go uh, climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So the, the idea of helping orphans and starting schools kind of morphed into mountaineering. Sounds like your daughter was one that led the charge a little bit. At this point in time, you're 48. Obviously, that's no easy task for anybody. Really, how did you prepare and what did you do to get up there? We both trained at the YMCA and training really consisted of a lot of hours on a Stairmaster and then carrying a backpack, 40, 50 pounds. And that would be twice a week and then weightlifting training and then outdoor hikes on the weekends for nine to 12 miles carrying a backpack. And then that became kind of my ritual of my regiment for every mountain that I've climbed. So Jen and I finished on Kilimanjaro. I was 48 and I, I, I thought I was done with this thing. And it kind of seemed like there was a life transition a little bit that these things that I started with orphanages and schools were now up and running. But now this thing with mountaineering was beginning to get its own wings underneath it. My wife and I and children went and saw Denali, uh, the national park in 2010. And once I saw it, I was smitten. And I told my wife, I'd really, I'd like to take an attempt to climb it. She started laughing. So I I took that immediately as permission. Testing geography here. Denali is Alaska? Denali is Alaska. But to climb Denali, the preparation hike is Aconcagua. And that's in the Southern Hemisphere. So Denali is highest mountain in North America, 20,320, if I get that number right. And then Aconcagua is the, is the largest mountain outside of the Asia. That's roughly 22,900 feet. So then I began to train to Aconcagua. Went there the first time in 2012, learned a whole bunch, didn't get the summit. I stayed behind to watch somebody on the summit attempt with an understanding that I would get my own summit attempt the following day. I figured I could use a rest day. And then that, that deal was kind of reneged on. So I, I, didn't get a, I didn't get an attempt in 2012. Now, the, the beautiful thing about failure is if you're of the, the type, you will redouble your efforts. And that's really what I learned through Aconcagua. So in 2013, I went to Denali and then I did everything I could in order to make sure that I got to the summit. So I prepared well. Denali, you're, you're on, a, on a line with a guide and there's just roughly five or six people on the line. Everybody is tied in. You're going across crevasse fields. So if somebody falls in, you need to be able to arrest their fall. So we, Went there and I felt that like this was the hardest thing I ever did. However, I felt like I was in kind of the right spot as well. I was the oldest guy on our team, 53 at the time. And there were a lot of younger people who in our group who failed to get to the summit because they had failed to adequately prepare. And the preparation is, is physical and also mental. So you really have to have kind of a, a gritty spirit. And you got to keep one step ahead and driving it. I'm kind of following along here on my virtual map to just kind of know where <laughs> these mountains are at. And so it sounds like it was more of a team approach to a lot of this. And you're relying on others to help through this process, or is it really all, all you? 
you're on a team made up of individual members and there's an expectation that you're going to perform at a certain level to remain on the team. And those that perform at that level continue upward and the mountain reveals within us what is in us. The mountain will just show all. So if you if you prepared, you have a good shot at getting to the summit. If you haven't prepared, it'll be revealed. So the people that are the posers, and there always are some everywhere, they kind of get found out for who they are. And then once they have the real game, they, they can continue on. All right. So posers can't make it up the mountain. Flawed challenges. What's next for you? I had an opportunity to either go back to Aconcagua or to move onward. And I, at that point, decided I would move onward. And then the next really mountain in the scale of things is to try Everest after Denali. And I, I felt I had done my work. I learned my lesson at Aconcagua. I did my work in Denali and I felt I was prepared. So in 2014, I positioned myself to be able to get to the Himalayas and then to make an attempt on Everest. Unfortunately, in 2014, was the largest accident that had occurred in Everest history. And there was an avalanche in the ice fall and 16 people perished. Some of the Sherpa from our group, we had an ER doc on our group. And when there was triage being performed, he, he, was, he was beautiful in helping save lives on Everest. But when that occurred, the season was called off. You know, you put so much time and effort and you try to prepare for these things months and months and months and months to prepare for a project. I kind of went through depression afterwards, but came around and then I was going to make an attempt at 15. However, my mom was dying, so I postponed at 15. And 15 was the largest accident on Everest, again, where there was an avalanche that came off a mountain, Mori, and blew through the whole base camp. And that ended and ended 15 without a summit. So I prepared again for 16 and I went back. And with the accidents in 14 and 15, there were far less people on Everest. And then 16, I, I began the kind of the grind to try to get up the mountain. You know, especially with Everest being such a fabled mountain across the world. You know, it's amazing just to hear that you're going to be able to try it. Tell us about the experience going up. I was 55 years old. I'm thinking, you know, do I have enough within me to try to get to the summit? And uh, I had committed myself to an attempt. And the process is you have about a seven to nine day walk in to base camp, which is about 17,500 feet. Rest for a day or two. And then you begin these rotations to get up the mountain. First rotation would be to get at camp one, which is about 21,500 feet. That took roughly 12 hours. You start roughly at 11 o'clock at night and you try to travel through pretty much through the night because the mountain and the ice fall is more stable. Then beyond camp one, we took a hike up to uh, advanced camp one, which was another thousand feet maybe. And then we returned back down to the ice fall, through the ice fall back to base camp. And then Next rotation was to get to Camp 2, which is roughly 22,000, 23,000 feet. Stayed overnight, went up another 2,000 feet, came back, spent another night, and then went back down to base camp. So you're doing this up and down 
so that you're oxygenating your blood because you don't want to get cerebral edema, which is the swelling of your brain, which is lethal, or you don't want to get pulmonary edema, which is the blood in your uh, lungs, which is lethal as well. So you have to be very careful with the way that you're, that you're climbing. And the process has kind of been worked through over the years. There was an interesting thing since I was like the oldest guy in the group again, the younger people would leave earlier in the day. We'd all leave same time in the day, but they would get to wherever first. I'd be up there about a half an hour, an hour later. And we just develop a, a wonderful camaraderie over time. With the group that I were, was with, there were no posers. Every, everyone there did their own work, w- was ready to uh, make an honest attempt at the summit. Yeah. Now you look, it looks like the English translation is holy mother. So, you know, just to enlighten me more, how long is this entire process? Were you just given a map and you're like, good luck, go do it? Or the Sherpas, were they the ones helping you? I guess I'm so uneducated, just a little more background there. It takes roughly two months. So you're going to commit from about the end of March to about the end of May. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to catch the monsoons will be on the, the Bay of Bengal and they'll push the jet stream off Everest. And typically there is a window there of seven to 10 days in the month of May. And you want to position yourself to the summit towards the middle of May. And then the people who assist the climbs are the Sherpa people. Their Sherpa is people from the East. Typically they're from Tibet or China and they've settled into this Kumbo region. So they're acclimated, uh, living at 13,000 feet. And they're really the workhorse on, on all of these expeditions. And then it's orchestrated by a guide. In my case, I, cho- I chose a guide by the name of Garrett Madison, very, very highly qualified to summit at Everest 10 times. Just appreciated the way that he interacted with me, appreciated his professionalism, appreciated the Sherpa team that we had. All right. Okay. So you got to camp two. What's next? In the final rotation, you would go to camp one. That might take eight hours. Then you go to camp two. That might take eight hours. Then you go to camp three. That might take another eight hours. And you're, you're really waiting for the weather window to open. Once that weather window is open, then you're going to scurry as fast as you can to get to high camp, which is on the South Call, that's at about 26,500 feet. With the rotations that we did, there were three rotations. When we came back from the second rotation, we went down to 13,000 feet, which felt like sea level. The air was thick. The higher up on the mountain, the, the more rare the air is. And I really can't describe it. I really can't describe it. Beyond the third camp, you take oxygen with you. So now you're subsisting on bottle oxygen. And then above 26,000 feet is really considered the death zone. You can't survive there for any particular amount of time. So you're trying to get through camp four to the summit and back down as quickly as you can. Our attempt from camp three to get to the uh, high camp, we had winds in excess of 50 miles an hour in the morning. So we're supposed to begin at six o'clock in the morning. And it was uh, almost impossible to leave your tent. I mean, 
that was the only protection we had. And you thought to yourself, what the hell am I doing this for? And about an hour later, didn't abate the weather, but we, we got ready and hooked in. And there's a fixed line on the mountain. So Denali, you're hooked into other people. On Everest, you're hooked into the mountain. And you're using your carabiners to hook yourself into that mountain. And then it's just step by step by step by step, hour by hour by hour. I was, again, the last one to arrive in camp, the high camp, camp four. I had my whole story in my head. There's no way I could do this. I apologize. And, and when I saw Garrett, I began to say it because I thought that we were leaving for the summit attempt that evening. And then he said to me, oh, no, 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 Joel, we, we have a whole day to rest here. We're going to the summit tomorrow night. And then it was really at that point, at about a month and a half in it, that I thought I had a legitimate shot at the summit. So then at this point with your team, you're on this hook, you're at that. Because I saw this in the news a few years ago. People were getting stuck at the top because there's so many people trying to do it. You had to wait for the next person to go and more casualties occurred then. And was that around the same time or is this a completely different moment? You can't gather a crowd there. When we made the decision to attempt the summit, Garrett kind of classified us as the faster and the slower. So he told me, Joel, we're going to start you at seven o'clock at night with another gentleman with a Sherpa. And then we began to make the attempt. Now, I kind of call it a conga line where you're roped in behind all these other people with about the same start time. So somewhere in the middle of the night, around midnight, one o'clock in the morning, all you, all you have is your little uh, headlight on. And my Sherpa told me to unhook from the uh, line attached to the mountain. And I did what I was told. And then we went around everybody in the conga line till we were first in the conga line. And we kind of left them in the back. So by daybreak, there were almost nobody in front of me. There was really nobody in front of me that I could see. We were on uh, the South Summit and I had the mountain really all to myself and, and my shirt book. So to rephrase this, you're the oldest one in the group and you passed everybody and then you had the entire mountain to yourself. Is that what I just heard? I got the early start by five hours. So everybody else in the group started at midnight. Now, I, I had thought that I would need like an eight o'clock start and he, he brought it back down to seven o'clock start. So I was the oldest and the slowest. However, the other people who started at eight o'clock or seven o'clock from other groups, we all started at the same time together. And those were the people that I passed. Got it. So when you're at, you're at this point, it's you, you have a lot of open space in front of you. I guess what's going through your mind and I guess what's your plan at this time? Well, we had oxygen is one thing I'm thinking about. I, I ran out of a container and then got another container. It wasn't set correctly. You, you use a, uh, a mask that was originated by, by the Russian, Russians and it was used for fighter jets and it's hooked up for oxygen. And my, my mask tripped liquid, which then froze on my suit and I couldn't open my suit up for any water, any tea, any nutrition. So part of what my mind was grinding through is just 
step, take 10 breaths, take a step, take 10 breaths. And then also understanding that I was beginning to fatigue without anything to drink or eat. And that was roughly about 10 hours into it, I suppose. Now, how, how cold is it at this point? Silly question. It would be maybe 25 degrees below zero, 30 degrees below zero. It's balmy. Not so much. Yeah, we're going through this big winter storm right now here in the Midwest. So got pretty cold, but nowhere near that. Easy peasy. You just need your Everest down suit. And I'll gladly sell your mind, Brad. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, inspiring nonetheless. So maybe I'll start with just a little hill in my backyard. But um, <laughs> there you go. All right. So keep cruising as we continue to go. You're getting close to the top. You're worried about your health. You're worried about not eating. What happens next? So daybreak was incredibly beautiful. You're seeing the uh, curvature of the earth and it kind of reinvigorates you to keep going. So just plodding along, south call, south summit. And then you go where the, the mountain kind of comes together is, is roughly 18 inch wide path that you're traversing to get up to the summit. So when nobody's on that path, it seemed pretty easy. And in the daylight, it seemed pretty easy. So with, with the help of the Sherpa, then I arrived at Summit roughly 6.45 in the morning. So about 12 hours later, I, I had got to the Summit, which uh, is a view to die for. Yeah, heard about that in the news. Mm-hmm. And you shared some photos, and when we were talking about this a few months back, that are just you know, incredible. And I'm following along as I'm Googling you know, different visuals, just kind of make me feel like I'm there. So I guess, tell me, once you were up there, what did you do? What, you know, people hang out? Like, what's the, what's the plan? That's interesting because you're, you're at a particular place. You can't spend any significant time there. Your assignment is you're only half done because you, you have to get down. So you take in all the beautiful views. You take pictures. I was up on the summit for about an hour, taking it all in. I had a, a couple little flags from associations that I'm affiliated with to have my pictures taken with that. And then when I saw the people on the conga line beginning to come up after about 7.30, I began to get anxious and just wanted to begin to get down. And that's when I started down. So when you're, when you're going down, is it as fast as going up, slower going up, more scary? It should be faster, but I hadn't had anything to eat or drink for maybe 13 hours at this point. I was just beginning to bonk. And as people were trying to climb up attached to the line, I was trying to climb down attached to the line. People were, you know, trying to unhook my carabiners. And you're attached to the line with two different ropes, different carabiners attached to the fixed line. So... It, it really becomes a dance of uh, one person going uphill, unattaching one of their carabiners, attaching back in, and you're doing the same thing downhill. And you're doing that over and over and over and over and over again. So maybe, let's say there's 150 people that I'm doing that with. And then at some point, I stepped through a corniche and my foot was no longer on, on the path. It was in thin air. And then I... Uh, I fell off the mountain backwards into Nepal, 
which is really an interesting perspective on the world upside down. <laughs> At that moment, you would think I would really be scared, but I had, I had no thoughts. The thoughts in my mind kind of went, do you have your oxygen container? Yeah, it didn't fall out of my backpack. Hmm, that's good. Okay, now what are you going to do? Because nobody's going to help you get back up once you fall. And I'm upside down, tethered to the fixed line, looking out over at Nepal. I was able to swing my body and gain purchase with my crampons. And I just swung myself up. And that, that episode lasted for 30 seconds, maybe. It didn't last a very long period of time. And then I just continued downward. Wow. What was going through your head when that was happening? I mean, that's just something that nobody's ever going to really experience, right? Okay, well, tell the story at least. There are no emotions. You become very stoic. Any negative emotion is just going to impede what you're trying to accomplish. So I, I was just happy that everything held. I do, I do have a side point. I mentioned my mom passed in 2015. She passed of uh, pulmonary fibrosis, which is a lung disease where you can't get oxygen into your lungs. So she battled that for five years. And in my mind's eye on the summit attempt on that evening, I saw her. And as I'm taking one step, 10 breaths, one step, 10 breaths, I said, oh, mom, I get it now. This is what you went through in your, in your last days of your life. Not very fun, but uh, the woman had a lot of grit. And I, and I think these, these challenges really have the opportunity to bring out the best in you. So I made it down to eye camp where I ate some food and got some drink and stayed overnight. And then we went from high camp down to camp one the following day and then down to base camp the day after that. All right. So Everest is done. That's checked off. Incredible to be able to make it and handle all that. You know, I got to ask, what's, what's going to be next? I had a friend kind of call me out of the blue who had climbed Vincent in Antarctica. And that's one of the seven summits. And what he wanted to do was to ski to the South Pole. Now, he had, he had flown to the South Pole, but didn't ski there. And he wanted to do that. And he wanted to ski to the North Pole. And my first thought was, why would anybody want to do that? And then and I thought about it for a little bit. And I'm thinking, here's, here's another opportunity, a door's opening. Let's go for it. So I, we struck a deal. I said, I'd ski with you to the South Pole. Or I'll ski with you to the North Pole if you ski with me to the South Pole. And then we, we became tent mates there, did that together, climbed Vincent. And that was in 2017. So I had, was able to summit Everest and get to the poles within one year. And that was uh, kind of like, okay, what's next after that? Then I just tried to put together the rest of the one so there's Elbrus and my daughter and I climbed Elbrus. Karstens in Papua New Guinea climbed that one. And then I only had one mountain left, and that was Aconcagua. And that was the mountain that I had failed on the first time. And I really, I really hated that mountain. It got the best of me. So I went a second time, and I really had chosen the wrong guide. And it got the best of me a second time. So the third time was 2000. 19, Garrett introduced me to a guy there who uh, he and I went alone. And he, he's known on Aconcagua as a, just a great guy, great human being, 
And he didn't give up on me. So I was able to get that summit in 2019. I got to ask, and men's test this a while back. As a family man, as a husband, sounds like your daughter is supportive during this process, but what's your you know, family saying? What's your wife saying? Everything as you're doing these challenges. They are and were supportive. They had to let go of certain things for themselves. They had to let me do what I wanted to do and not try to control me or a given situation. And they were very good at that. However, my wife was very, uh, very much challenged without the uh, communication coming from Everest. And she was very challenged when, when I went to the final uh, Aconcagua for the final time. But that's kind of part of the mix in mountaineering. Yeah, I mean, that's um, amazing you had their, uh, their support. I don't know how easily that would go over in my household, let alone a lot of others. But going through all of this, learning what you learned, I guess, what are some lessons that you took away that you would want to share with those listening? I'm very entrepreneurial in, in nature. I'm kind of in an army of one. So for me to take a path which is divergent from most paths is not forward to me. The starting of orphanages, that was kind of like a calling in life. And then I, that, you know, was a 10 year run. And then this mountaineering was about a 10 year run. And the lessons that I'm, that I'm learning and taking away, there is huge value to failure. If you, if you harvest it well, there is just huge value. And then being real, because the mountain will reveal with what's inside of you. If you've done your work, done your, your diligent, then you get a shot. There's no guarantee, but you get your shot. And then who, who do you surround yourself with? If you surround yourself with people that are positive and encouraging and like-minded, then the, the chance or the likelihood of good things happening is greater. The power of discipline, the amount of effort that I went through to train for these different adventures really gave meaning and purpose to life. Not, not that I don't have meaning and purpose from being a husband and a father or starting a business, it gives additional meaning and purpose to life. Your mountaineering experiences taught you, you know, a set of lessons that you'll never learn otherwise. I think something we kind of looked over at the very beginning is your involvement with the nonprofits, what you've been able to accomplish in Uganda. Let's revisit that a little bit more. What, what are things that we could take away from understanding your experiences in that process? Where I started in Uganda was kind of a vision trip and I got to see the lay of the land in Western Uganda. And then I got to see the, the great need for very little money. You could take care of orphans and then you can get them schooled. And I thought, what a, what a great opportunity to help these people to, to raise up to the next level for themselves. And I work with a group, Partners in Mission. They're out of Glen Ellen, Illinois. And that was one of the groups I work with. And the other one, Juna Amagara, which means saving lives. Both these organizations were really about how to raise up the children in these countries. The interesting thing about Uganda too is they, these people are literally dirt poor outside of the large cities, just have absolutely nothing. However, what they do have is joyful hearts and they're spiritually alive. And it seemed to me like we, it's a transaction of here's Americans with money and helping them, yet we receive the joy from them that it comes from assisting others to get to 
maybe a higher ground that they need to get to. And I just, I just love that. And I have thoroughly enjoyed those experiences. I never dreamed I would go to Uganda and do that. I never dreamed I would climb a mountain. I never dreamed I would start a company. But it seems like if you, if you walk step by step, and if you listen to the calling in your own heart, you, you'll be able to do these kinds of things and probably far greater. I mean, in some small way, I've, I've had some accomplishments, but there are people that accomplish way, way more than I do, Brad. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll bring them on next. Next interview will be with you, Brad, when you go do that, okay? Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, I don't even have a good an analogy to use because things are pretty simple. <laughs> so, Joel, your story's been great. Obviously, you're a, a model that not everybody can follow, and it's just incredible to hear the things you've been able to accomplish. So I guess, what are then some takeaways that you would say to others throughout your experiences? I think early on, when somebody tells you no, if you're entrepreneurial, you hear the word go. So you don't let other, other people's negatives become your limit. The power of diligence and discipline is just incredible. And when you are that way, you will begin to be surrounded by people that are that way. And it becomes inspiring. So, so for the younger crowd, I would just say, you know, don't, you don't have to have life all figured out. I'm, I'm 63 years old. I'm trying to figure it out. It is do the one thing in front of you and do it to the best of your ability. There is uh, such, and I tell my people at work, I don't care if you're, you're in the production line, sales guy, a janitor, all work is, is noble and ennobling. And if we do that work, and if we do it for the best of our abilities, good things will happen. And if you just keep playing that forward, good things will happen. And then everybody's road is different. Everybody's journey is different. So I hope you're encouraged a little bit what, what some of the things that I've done. And then I hope, I hope that you will do something similar or greater. Joel, you know, thanks for everything that you've been able to share today. Motivational, nonetheless. Uh, my next question, what's next? What's on the horizon? I, I've thought about a couple different projects. What, what was last on the horizon is my eldest daughter just got married and I performed the ceremony for her and her husband. So that kind of occupied about all of my time. I've been asked to give a couple different talks, which I'll be doing in the next month or so. Beyond that, as far as uh, adventure, I don't know exactly what it's going to be. I've never been to Greenland. I know some people that want to do a cross country across Greenland that would take a month. That's interesting to me. I will be heading out to Mongolia in August to go on a, on a river trip with my son. He's a fly fisherman. So lo and behold, we're on a fly fishing trip in the middle of nowhere. So, but I, I want to keep life as an adventure and I want to keep leaning into it. So as these opportunities arise, then I'll just keep plugging myself into it with those people that want to do those kinds of things. Joel, I mean, this story has been amazing. Learning from you over these last few years has been amazing. So thank you for being able to come on, share, and just be you. You know, you've been, you've been great, and we really appreciate everything you've been able to share. Thank you for your time today, Brad and Aaron. And I hope, I hope this was helpful to somebody in your podcast audience. I really do. I really do. I've told myself after I was done with Everest that if anybody asked me ever to speak on this, I would do so. I would do so because there are lessons here for people. And if it helps anybody, 
then I'm all for it. Well, thank you so much, Joel. You have an extraordinary story, an extraordinary history, an extraordinary spirit, and the amount of wisdom we got from you in this short podcast is just fantastic, unbelievable. And for all of you who are listening, please share this podcast with people who could use a bit of inspiration because if this story, if Joel's story wasn't inspiration enough, I don't know what is. So for Brad Skluzacek and for Joel Schauer and for the entire team at Green Up Wealth Management, thank you for listening. Green Up Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor and the opinions expressed are our own. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.